Hey, Kara, what's up? Guess what I'm doing. Oh, darling, <laughs> eating the clementine. Who do we have on the show today, Chris? Well, we have Peter Gray back, who our listeners would have heard on the episode where we memorialized Frank Marlowe. That was Alyssa Crittenden and Peter Gray. Peter Gray is at UNLV, University of Nevada at Las Vegas. I think he was trained by Rich Bribieskis, who we've interviewed, and he has a long a career of studying male reproductive health. And so he's got, he sent us several chapters on male reproductive health. He sent health. us so much. We had so much fodder. Like writing these questions was actually hard. Like I feel like I have to cover the breadth of everything. So I know it's hard that. to choose. And I, I, I've been enjoying the heck out of these articles. So shall we bring him in? Let's bring him in as I crunch my clementine. Hi, Peter. I'm eating a clementine, which you just walked in on this weird clementine conversation. Oh. <laughs> so... <laughs> Are you gonna Are you gonna share? Would you like me to like smush some into the camera? Sure, sure. It's lunchtime. I shall get a clementine slice <laughs> as close as possible. Oh, that's yeah. good. <laughs> no scurvy today. I'll add mine in as well. We'll, we'll oh. give you a little a little milk chocolate slim fast shake with caffeine and a clementine. We have a very nutritious <laughs> lunch. Welcome back, Peter. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. So it's been what two years. And when I looked back, I kind of filed through our emails, like, when was the last time I talked to him? And the interview took place on January 6th of 2020, a very infamous day in United States history. What did we do? What okay. did we do? Um, so, yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> At that time, when we would have done that interview, if we even knew about it, and I just did, wasn't thinking it was a big deal at the time. I was just like, ugh. More. Hold on, I think I'm actually wrong, because it'd be January 6, 2021, right? Yeah, but we, but we might have set up what happened a year we later. What happened, also, that was about two months before everything shut down in the U.S., more or less. Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. So I'm, we were I'm actually a year ahead time. of time. Yeah, 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 yeah. But still, it was before everything in the U.S. shut down, and, you know, globally shut down, too. So a lot has happened. And we had you on as part of our memorial honoring the the life and work of Frank Marlowe. And we wanted to get you back so we could honor your work and feature your work on the show. So thank you so much for coming back and taking the time with us today. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, thank you for having me back. I'm glad I didn't, despite all the horrible things that have happened since then. Do and are happening to... literally today, <laughs> right now, because- Very true, we, we, keep, we keep piling it on. Oh my yeah. gosh. At some point we'll stop. The world always has things going on. So, you know, the the podcasting never stops. <laughs> so what have you been up to these past two years? Oh, man. <laughs> like many, I think my first reaction is a groan. So the last couple of years, it, it's just been rough. I think each of us has our own version of rough. Uh, my version is rough. Uh, I'm, a, I'm just mentally surviving, and it's been really, frankly, awful. But, you know, I'm, I'm here and I look for small positives when I can, and I look to try to live a life where I'll see more of the positives, less of the negatives moving forward. But it's, it's been pretty tough. Uh, I've done a little bit better this last year when we've been back on campus more. So seeing students in person for one-on-ones or group meetings or working with administrators in group meetings in person, uh, that's helped. Uh, my kids being back in school in person versus the year before online at home with me, that's helped. But I'll just breathe a deep sigh of, uh, to reflect on the last two years. Well, let's jump right into uh, research stuff then. We can always deny the reality of the world by throwing ourselves into our research, can we not? Literally been my pandemic coping mechanism. 
Like my publication record through the pandemic has been outrageous because that was the way I coped. That's not healthy. Last time we talked to you, I'm sure we probably did a little bit of the origin stuff, but we didn't do the origin of your research with regard to like what your specific expertise is. I don't I don't know if we did or not, but like as we were as we were opening up, I'm like, I think Peter was either trained by uh, Rick Bribieskis or has some like there's there's a lot of of synergy here. I see him all over this, and we interviewed him recently. So I was just wondering if you could refresh us or tell us for the first time how you came into anthropology, why you chose this as as, as your uh, area of expertise, and uh, just I might as well just ask the whole question the way we always do: why you choose to go into anthropology as a profession? Wow. Well, uh, to, to go to the deepest layer, my mom was a second grade teacher. She's retired. My dad was a sales manager in Sinton Dairy in Colorado Springs, I think five generations. I spent one summer in high school working in that dairy and I stocked, not like stocked people, but put dairy products where they belonged on the shelves. And I got angry at those who moved the products where they shouldn't be. S-T-O-C-K, not S-T-A-L-K. I get it. Took me a second. Yes, yeah, because we might get into some of the A-L-K stuff too, but I wasn't doing that. Uh, but that was uh, sort of launching from there. I went to UCLA as an undergrad. Uh, I initially started civil engineering, shifted into evolutionary anthro effectively after taking an intro human evolution class that was far more aligned with my interests and passions, even though I didn't know where I'd go with that. Uh, worked as an undergrad doing an honor thesis with my primary advisor, Rob Boyd. And that was awesome. The team of folks at UCLA, just incredible. And I launched from that went to Harvard for grad school. And initially I thought I was gonna be a Hadza researcher. Hence, when Frank Marlowe, when Frank Marlowe arrived, I thought, okay, here we go. So I'll be his first Harvard PhD student working with the Hadza. And I had a PhD project funded by Leakey Foundation to look at female costs and benefits to pair bonding that in the late nineties, early 2000s was oriented towards testing, what are females getting out of this bonding? So is, is this a net cost? Is this a benefit? Is there a benefit to protection like the Rangham cooking hypothesis that was published around then? Uh, is there some other benefit? Um, and after about two and a half years of research permit delays, I finally said enough because in that time I got married and I too want to have a longer life beyond waiting for emails regarding a permit status update. So my backup project, interestingly, was on testosterone marriage and fatherhood. And that's how I became effectively the child of what I, I think jokingly referred to as partable paternity. So Frank Marlowe and Peter Ellison were my two main, my PhD focus on testosterone marriage and fatherhood. The other committee members were Richard Rangham and Cheryl Knott, ensuring that I brought a comparative ape approach to the work I was doing focused on humans. Thanks. Coming out of that, um, I authored a number of studies on testosterone marriage and fatherhood, including a study I did as part of PhD fieldwork in Kenya, looking at testosterone levels of men who were either polygynously married, so two, hus two, two wives, monogamously married or unmarried, uh, but with varied mating parenting effort mixtures, and found that the guys with two wives had higher testosterone in a Kenyan Swahili community, helping further launch kind of the expanded diversity of human family arrangements, including marital dynamics that might be related to testosterone, and in turn, thinking of the kind of stuff that I still think about until the present. So I just want to say thank you for that really thorough answer. And I just was, I was just given this supreme compliment uh, by a colleague who said, 
because of the work you and Kara have been doing on the podcast, I think that you guys probably have a good sense of what's going on in the field of human biology. And I was like, holy crap, that's why we started this podcast. Thank you. I don't know if you're right, but the fact that you think that I do know that uh, means a lot. And it actually comes from hearing these origin stories where we understand, oh, this is how all the dots connect among the people. We know during various bodies of research and uh, one, theory explains why you cite people, but we also know that we are more inclined to cite people's work if we know the people and know their work, you know, because we've encountered them in meetings and stuff like that. So thank you. It's really interesting to hear all of this. So he sent us a book chapter titled Male Reproductive Health that's coming out in the Cambridge Handbook of Evolutionary Perspectives on Sexual Psychology. And part of this chapter covers facets of the pre-copulatory phase from the male perspective, which is always a good topic to start with. So you dig into some of the potential reproductive health benefits associated with this phase, such as injury, change in social status, secondary sexual characteristics. So I was wondering if you could walk us through the issues males may encounter. We're calling it the pre-copulatory phase, but obviously what we're saying is there are problems males encounter in their reproductive health before sex. Yeah, well said. And the way we divided up this chapter is indeed that first phase, and then we have a, a so-called copulatory uh, stage, and then also a post-copulatory. It differs a little bit from the so-called sperm competition and cryptic female choice literature, in which they would use post-copulatory a little bit differently. They'd be talking about the sperm striving for an ovum in the post-copulatory, whereas we mean like, okay, you've conceived and you have a kid. but uh, mindful of those kinds of caveats, the, po the pre-copulatory, what are we talking about? It is a phase in which male reproductive effort, or male life history effort, even broader, is channeled into increased amounts of reproductive effort, particularly mating effort. So if reproductive effort can be coarsely divided between mating and parenting, here's an effort devoted to mating effort in which you're competing with other males, courting and trying to impress potential mates all in the quest to leave a fertilized, leave an ovum fertilized, and in turn a genetic legacy is a crude way to put it, maybe in a Darwinian way. I was just going to say the next sort of obvious question that we 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 didn't ask, but that that should sort of wrap around all of these articles is sort of like you sent us several articles on male reproductive health. So what's the what's the gap that you're you're filling out there that that was lacking before these? That's a really good question. And I think the answer depends on who the audience is. So mm -hmm. some of our conversations and perhaps your conversation with Rick Bribiescas is we already know some of these things. And if we're only speaking to an internal human bio association audience, there isn't necessarily a whole lot of novelty. On the other hand, if I'm talking to uh, Shalander Bassine, with whom I did my postdoc eons ago, 2003, 2005, who directs an andrology and male aging unit at the Harvard Med School, he was not familiar with some of these kinds of concepts and would be citing things like, you know, human, more humans are living longer lives, but it's a literature that we obviously would know deeper than those that would know. Conversely, they know things that we don't know. Um, so depending on who you're talking to, including folks in the clinical world, I don't know that they would be thinking about life history trade-offs, the trade-offs between investment in maintenance versus reproductive effort, particularly mating effort, yielding trade-offs such as arguably um, diminished lifespans or males being willing to suffer injuries for the uh, uh, quest for leaving a genetic legacy. Some of those things that are kind of, they sort of fall out of our heads pretty readily, don't necessarily do so for other audiences. 
in ways that I think we add value to a really integrative, holistic approach to how we understand, say, male reproductive health and aging. I really like that, actually, that answer of how the gaps you're filling actually depends on who you are and even where you are, uh, because we often end up looking for papers that end up being published in U.S. journals, but there's a whole lot of work going on elsewhere in the world, and so it's really important to try to cross those bridges. And so... You know, maybe maybe you could speak to this with the with the uh, the Cambridge chapter that you that you came out. These different health phases. So, what sorts of things do you want to say make clinicians aware of when it comes to like this pre-copulatory health concerns and versus post-copulatory health concerns? So, the overarching concepts put in life history theory are males are willing to sacrifice some of their investment mechanisms for mating effort and mating effort broken into male competition, let's say, and, and, and seeking mates. And what are some manifestations of that? One question during COVID era has been, why are men in, my, in many studies dying at higher rates? So then you get into behavioral differences. You might be thinking, okay, occupations, exposures, and so forth. And a lot of people immediately go there for good reason. But there may also be some inherent differences related to, say, immune function that complement and synergize with those behavioral differences. And that's something that you and I, I think, think about really obviously, but helps ensure a, a wider frame of reference for these things, because it's also salient to what interventions are going to have effects. So you can change me all you want, but you still can't change the fact I have my genetic makeup, early life, sensitive periods shaped in ways that impacted my immune system in ways that make me you know, respond to some novel um, infectious agent today in a way that statistically might yield some sex differences in some of these patterns. So that's that's one example I think put in COVID. Uh, another example is just span out why the sex difference and longevity. Uh, you get a lot of answers and I think increasingly you will see evolutionarily framed answers being welcomed and considered by wider audiences beyond say bioanthro or HBA type audiences. Uh, but I think you actually need those wider frameworks, including the comparative evidence that informs them to have the deepest answer to why, like Briviescus would have talked about this too, why I'm statistically less likely to live as long as my wife. I also appreciate that different audiences have different, uh, there are different gaps. So so one of the things that I see, and this, this is not in the list of questions we sent, but one that given your background, I'm, I'm interested in your perspective. Um, Sometimes there are disagreements, let's say, disciplinary disagreements between evolutionary psychologists and anthropologists, and they tend to converge around uh, what, the, what, what some call reductionistic uh, explanations of human sexual behavior. And I will say, I love the way in your writing that you, without addressing the debate, you navigate all of the evolutionary studies in a, in a really nice narrative way. But I wonder how you maybe mentally uh, think about those those controversies and do they influence your work at all? Yeah, no, that's a, a great question. And I was trained in a way that made me try to be really broad and integrative and say, what are the questions? What is the relevant evidence? For the lines of evidence we bring to bear to address a question, what are the strengths and limitations of that evidence? And I'm willing to, to pick and choose from wherever, not just across, you know, F-Psych versus HBE or human behavioral ecology, but wherever. 
And that also means we need to embed ourselves in the comparative discussions of non-human animal research uh, and so forth. Uh, how does that then translate? I teach an evolution of human behavior class in which you talk about three paradigms, an F-psych approach, a human behavioral ecologist approach, a gene culture co-evolutionary approach. Each of those has their relative strengths and weaknesses. Each of those has greater relevance for certain kinds of questions and certain moments than others. And I'm comfortable living in a complex world in which all of those things can bounce around in our heads and we just apply what we need to apply when we need to apply it to get the best answer to our question. Huge fan of that, uh, because that is also kind of how I'm approaching a few things that I'm tackling with right now, theoretically. And you will get different opinions from clinicians because, you know, of course, they really only ever see sick people. And so the idea that there are people who might not get sick for different reasons doesn't exist to them because they don't see those people. And so I really appreciate that perspective. Uh, and another thing that you bring into this is the the, the chapter that you have coming or actually just came out. Uh, the edited volume, which is the Rutledge Handbook of Anthropology and Reproduction, which is edited by uh, Sally Hahn and Cecilia Tamori, who we're going to have on later this semester, I believe, to talk about this whole edited volume. Uh, and so you take this kind of zoomed out view of, of male reproductive health, but with a bit of an evolutionary lens uh, in this chapter. And so I kind of have two questions. One is like my own personal interest, but one is the real question, I guess you could say, is how has evolution shaped male reproductive health? And then the Kara question is, how do you think that female anatomy, physiology, and behavior has also shaped the evolution of male reproductive health? So to answer the first of those questions, if we lined up us with other apes trying to then draw upon what constitutes a, a quote, human, like essentialized in reproductive scheduling, we might try to draw upon the limited quantitative demographic data from what few foragers are left or semi-foragers, whatever they're labeled. And when, and the patterns then comparing us with chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, and orangutans would say, we tend to have a, a later age of pubertal maturation, a later age of first reproduction, shorter interbirth intervals or times between births, later age of last reproduction, and overall higher fertility, as well as less reproductive skew or variance among males relative to our ape cousins translate that, most the genetic data tell us from wild chimps and gorillas, where we have better data than, say, bonobos, uh, tell us that most chimpanzee fathers and gorillas are 15 to 25 years of age. But if we start for that, like the reproductive scheduling, uh, we have a different male reproductive schedule than that of our closest living male species relatives. And in turn, that starts a conversation about what we're designed to do at what ages and in turn, why if we live longer ages than even we might be expected to, you see a variety of things fall apart with advancing age as maintenance mechanisms decline, so reproductive senescence. Um, so what, now I think I've lost the track to the first question, but uh, I start with something like that, and then you get into, um, it might be optimized you know, for, for competition, especially earlier life, early adult life years. That sensitivity to competition makes abundant sense, whether it's within uh, you know, coalitions, the, the, the ways by which you define status, um, the, the kinds of things that are reward status, uh, the dominance versus prestige kind of contrast, all those things throw them in the blender and males are intensely sensitive to status for reasons that make abundant sense in reproductive arenas because the data even today show in the US, in the UK, in Brazil today, men with more resources still are more likely to leave a reproductive legacy than men who have fewer resources. So this stuff is still stringent 
stringently operating on meth. So this is not like an FSIC world that's forgotten about status and resources mattering in 2022. The world still cares and men know that. And this helps start that com conversation about male reproductive investment to make yourself an eligible father, uh, as it were. Um, so I lost the, the train of thought, but that's okay. That's okay. There. Uh, to like to to give you an example, I, I've been I've been thinking about this idea of of sensitivity actually quite a bit more. I'm, I've been digging into some of the exercise physiology literature, looking at female performance versus male performance, and how it seems that in many ways, and this links up to the idea of male reproductive health and why men are often they men die quicker while women get sicker. That that whole phrase mm. going along here. But it also seems that physiologically, males might be far more sensitive to environmental perturbations than than females. That females are able to operate at a you know, at at homeostasis, if you will, at a much greater range of environmental variation than males do. And I've seen that in Finland to to a certain degree. But also looking through the exercise physiology literature, like females seem so much better constructed for so many more. <laughs> things yet that's not the narrative you ever hear so i find it fascinating yeah and i agree with that fully i think there's a paper i think circulating in review for comment right now or somewhere close to that stage for behavioral and brain sciences by richard rangham and joyce benenson that'll make exactly that point about female life history aligning with uh enhanced immune function for defense but even things like disgust sensitivity that might say females are more sensitive to certain kinds of things that could cause harm if ingested or even in a social sense, like the uh, the behavioral immune system sort of concepts. So I agree with you, Kara, fully. I think there's a lot of evidence that speaks to sort of the sex differences in the life history arrangements of what amounts to differences in maintenance functions or protective functions in ways that could go back to, if you're a mom, so um, uh, Ann Campbell, who's who sadly died a few years ago, a psychologist from Durham in, in the UK, her argument that women are highly advantage that they stay alive if they're a maternal, if they're a mammal whose offspring's survival in turn might depend upon their own survival, there might be good selective pressures operating to enhance all kinds of female maintenance or survival functions in turn helping contribute to the pattern you pointed out, not just in humans, but other, other species too. Is this the sort of the idea of the disposable soma? We, we talked to Rick about this, where men tend to engage in more high risk behavior and, and the sort of the idea that not only are their sperm, but their whole body a little bit more disposable than those of women who carry the burden of pregnancy and lactation? Yeah, I think so. So uh, Kara's point, I think, makes us think about and spotlight females. And then what you just said, Chris, highlights a male vantage point in which Rick has uh, commented on this, including men writ large and, and also aging men in his two books on the subjects of men. And in both ways, I think it does amount to that, the disposable soma. So if you want a Hollywood version of this, the movie's now a little bit dated, but I was just telling someone recently, I feel like The Wrestler. If you guys have ever seen that movie, The Wrestler, I feel like a middle-aged packet of meat. What do I have to offer the world? Increasingly, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I resemble that remark, Peter. So, And, and in the movie, the, the punchline is, all he's got, Randy, the whatever his name is, the middle-aged wrestler dude, he has nothing to offer except his body as meat in a wrestling ring and he knows it he tries other things in life but he's a failed middle-aged dude and that's all he can offer but he's a disposable soma chris i mean he's just society said that's all you amount to 
uh, but it's a it's kind of an arresting cinematographer cinematographic representation of the male disposable soma, I suppose. So speaking then of aging males and 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 working across disciplines, I want to jump ahead. You sent us a 2020 article from the journal The Aging Male called uh, A Qualitative Exploration of South African Men's Perceived Effect of Androgen Deprivation Therapy. So I was wondering, it, it, as a treatment for prostate cancer, so I was wondering if you could basically just unpack that, that study a little bit for us. Why? Why South Africa? And uh, why you took that on? Uh, so a strand through my research the last 20 years, and I, and I have a variety of strands, and those strands look even more varied in more recent years as I work with students and I'm quite adaptable to the student needs and interests. Uh, but a strand has been male reproductive health and behavior. Another strand related or overlapping has been testosterone and male social behavior. My postdoc again eons ago was with Shalander Basin in a world in which uh, men were being given testosterone or placebo age 65 and older to test the effects on all kinds of outcomes, including muscle, including physical activity, including self-reported psychological energy. So I was the psych tester. I'm going to uh, pause for a moment. Is this the same basin that w did the test where he had four groups of guys, some who yes. didn't do exercise, some did, and he gave testosterone to some and the others got nothing. And then you yes. saw the difference in how much muscle mass and strength they gained. I tell my students about that study. Uh, anyway, sorry, I just want to make sure it was the same person. I apologize but, for the interruption. And it was, Kara. So rewind the clock 20 years ago, I was nearing the, I was in the last year of my PhD asking what's next. And what I wanted to do was, uh, align a postdoc where I, I could I could leave the anthro world where I knew I was never going to be given men testosterone, but enter that world for several years to test causally the effects of testosterone. And he was doing the best studies, including what you decided, which actually was the same inspiration for me. I reached out to him cold, and it turns out he had a slot for a social scientist who became me in his lab group for two years. And that's what I did before hired at UNLV in 2005. So uh, uh, I've long been interested in testosterone and male social behavior. And uh, a lot of the work out there has asked, what are the effects of testosterone? And of course, we've seen that play out in the experimental domain of athletes. So how many athletes are not in the Hall of Fame in baseball because they were on stuff that they've acknowledged, but how many are in the Hall of Fame who somehow got around the full recognition of things they were on to help them hit balls further or hit people harder or whatever it may be. But um, there, there's the, I'm taking testosterone, what are the effects uh, in the world of athletics, but also clinical studies, including for middle-aged and aging men. And then if you extend this, you might ask, well, what happens if you remove or lessen people's testosterone? Uh, this is the oldest endocrine experiment done in our species. And we've also done it on all kinds of other animals. So you get into the animal domestication literature there's a lot of castrating bulls to make them more tractable in the fields that go back millennia. And years ago, when I was with Ben Campbell in, in rural Kenya, when I was a postdoc, also working on a testosterone and aging side project with Ben on Ariel male testosterone and aging, uh, we were talking with um, one of the local guys with whom we were collaborating about why we wanted to measure testosterone and what testosterone was. The relatable point was it's that thing that's in there in the livestock's testes when you remove it that has an impact. That that made sense in a rural Kenyan community discussion 17 years ago. Uh, anyway, ca castration, that's that's out there, read about in the Bible, etc. <laughs> uh, and so uh, what happens if you reduce or you know 
in really dramatic ways, lessen men's testosterone through chemical or physical castration. I was wondering about this kind of thing. And then what happened is coming out of this uh, as a dad whose kids now are teenagers and one's about ready to go off to college, I've always been trying to juggle work and family. And it's been it's, it's been its own challenge in, 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 in juggles in ways that could be its own episode. Uh, but uh, I was putting together an exploratory trip. And I went with Ben Campbell to South Africa some years ago and then piggybacked on that to say, uh, I think I can do something in a clinical setting to look at testosterone in aging men. Let's have two arms of this. One is let's try to find men who are taking testosterone in South Africa to complement some of the studies like in North America in which this is done. But let's also try to look at men who are having their testosterone reduced through so-called androgen deprivation therapy to look at this, which is what happens when you reduce the testosterone. They, we ended up not being able to get enough participants in the testosterone supplementation stuff, so that fell apart. Uh, but what we're left is, is that other paper. And I, I, I think um, it, it was an interesting paper, methodologically, conceptually, humanely, uh, just talking with some men who were physically castrated, who were telling you about their penises that aren't erect any longer, about whether they care or not to confess to others that they don't have balls, and also in some cases with some keen sense of humor. Uh, this isn't how you think of older men. <laughs> this is, but this is sensitive stuff and interesting stuff. And uh, in interviews with 22 men, 65 to 78 years of age, the, the, the most common pattern identified was a negative impact on sexual function and sexual mm. behavior. Not surprisingly, it converges with other data but just through interviews and letting men talk about the perceived effects of androgen deprivation therapy, literally being castrated, and I mean here physically castrated, not chemically castrated, uh, hearing what they perceive the effects to be is the flip side of the coin care of giving men testosterone to ask about its effects. What happens if we take them away? Here's one effect. So we're, we're probably close in age, Peter, and, and ben, ben is not far off either, so that means we would have been you would have been probably i'm guessing around late 20s early 30s when you're asking these these older men about their sexual dysfunction it's a question as a 50 year old i can imagine now asking very easily but i can't imagine uh having those conversations so what were those conversations like that's really that that methodological interface is fascinating yeah so to be specific then with that same 2000 actually 2004 summer study with Ben Campbell with the Ariel agro-pastoralists of, of rural Kenya. Um, because I was a postdoc working in Basin's lab at the time, there was tons of work around erectile function and yes, Viagra and other versions of that, uh, as well as testosterone. And so bantering around in the conversations in your weekly presentations is erectile function, erectile dysfunction, the International Index of Erectile Function 5, the short form, well, hey Ben, let's let's see if we can't apply this in the among the REL in this study, and in the interviews that accompanied the biological sample collection, that was arguably the highlight. A lot of men thought in 2004 this was pretty, or it seemed like the conversations were kind of energized by asking about erectile function because that's not what you get asked about in your everyday life very often. And Viagra was relatively new; that was late 90s, and there was keen interest. There's a blue pill out there somewhere that might be able to treat something that's very salient for many of us because many of us are older with maybe our third wife who 
is in her 20s with whom we want to have kids. So the social and reproductive dynamic there made this also more salient to literally reproduction, not just sex. In the US, this would be mostly about sex. Um, and it was really interesting. I have to say really interesting. So that was the, the, the sense that came out of that. And I've always been one of those people that from my upbringing, you might not have thought I'd be comfortable talking about some of these things. I grew up in Colorado Springs, again, stocking dairy products and with a second grade mom teacher. Uh, and yet somehow here I am and here I've been in some doing some things that are now a little bit surprising to have discussions with my teenage daughters about. <laughs> Love that as somebody who also grew up in a rather conservative family and conservative place and had the mother who tried to shove me in the pink tutu and I'm like, no, I want to play softball and I want to hit people uh, to, you know, now being at Notre Dame and correcting Notre Dame football players squat forms. So, that's, awesome. <laughs> um, that's a thing. Uh, so I have a question that's somewhat related, but also is going to take it off track a little bit. But as, as we wrap up, uh, because we talked about athletes and because you worked with Basin and, you know, the interesting stuff he has done. Um, what are your thoughts about natural testosterone testing among females in the Olympics and the number of female athletes that we have seen banned now because of this very narrow range that the IOC considers okay for only a very narrow range of sports as well? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I don't feel like I have sufficient expertise to mm. give you the, the answer for which you should then run out and do something. So I'll, I'll preface with that. Uh, one issue that was floating around in my lab history with the scene and and in the clinical world is is the sensitivity of female testosterone assays that's been a long discussion in the literature about the degree to which you can even buy some of the female salivary testosterone assay results uh, so that's a, its own technical discussion mm -hmm. and um, worthy of spotlighting itself moving on from that comment though um, one of the discussion points, I think, is, well, this, I think this ends up being a great case study in human diversity. Mm -hmm. So what is a human, uh, sex chromosomes, steroid hormone milieu, sensitive periods, there's a lot of variation that plays out in these mechanisms across the life course with sensitive periods in ways that can give rise to the full spectrum of variation within and between sexes. And of course, you then have discussion of intersex and so forth. That's the world. And it's also true, like, because testosterone itself is so sensitive to very acute moments, such as you compete and just the act of competing makes your testosterone rise. You win and your testosterone goes up. And so, like, even the timing of testing is a really interesting methodological question when it comes to athletes and having athletes being barred from the Olympics based on, honestly, a really poor understanding, I think, of the science and the gaps in the science. Yeah, so th this is difficult stuff. And then I think I've taught a class on male behavioral biology. I no longer do, but I, I did. And one of the questions that surfaced in these conversations when I did teach it in a week on sports, it was arguably the highlight of that class, which is one reason why I now teach a, an online anthro sports class instead, uh, is, okay, well, who are the various constituents or players in this discussion? So who's eligible? If we want to expand the scope of eligibility, let's be more lenient and let's allow more variation in the pool of competitors. Within the pool of competitors, some might say, well, we don't think it's fair to us if you allow some of the other individuals in the same pool with us. And I think the conversations about the swimmer and the Ivy Leagues this last week surfaced those very kinds of conversations because there is some overrepresentation of individuals with certain sex steroid and hormonal milieus 
among those on the victory platforms. Mm -hmm. And if you acknowledge that, then that's an internal politics of athletes themselves that complicates any straightforward answer to some of this. As well as just the definition of fairness, because we, I mean, we allow for advantages in sports. Otherwise, there would be no winners. There would be no podium if someone didn't have some advantage over somebody else. And so it becomes, where is that line in that discussion? Anyway, sorry, Chris, I will shut up about sports. <laughs> no, don't care. I will say, since we're on sports, I just got to say the sports scene out here is exploding. Uh, hmm. So you asked me, what have I been doing the last two years? Uh, one of the things I did the last two years was like three weeks ago, I volunteered for the NFL's Pro Bowl. Ooh, that's right. I saw those pictures. Yeah. Oh, that was fun. So that's what do you great. do if you need some extra juice? Uh, you volunteer. And then I actually got paid. They you needed to fucking, but you also needed to find what you mean by juice, given the topic of conversation today. True. <laughs> I, 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 do, I do drive back and forth to work sometimes past Jose Canseco's uh -oh. car wash. And, <laughs> nice. uh, you can show up certain days and times and pay him for an autograph. And of course, he wrote the book Juiced, literally. Nice. Uh, t discussing his own performance enhancing substance uh. use, of which synthetic testosterone was in his arsenal. Mm -hmm. and his I, wonder, bombing. I wonder if I could drive by Julio Jones' car dealership and. And ask, he's got a car dealership here in, oh in Tuscaloosa. Mm. Um, yeah, the, we, NFL, uh, the NFL combines in Indianapolis in a week uh, and a half, and I'm not going to be able to make it, sadly. Oh, they I just know. Tickets. I know. I'm, I, I, uh, I've been known to uh, follow um, Craig McElroy, the former Alabama quarterback, now Jock's radio uh, host, and Cole Kubelik, former Auburn lineman to locations to make sure I get some FaceTime. So I am right there with you. And and they, they did the combine in Mobile. But uh, let's toggle back to the, 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 the papers that you wrote. Uh, we can talk sports all day. And Karen, you, you never I'm have to apologize for that. I'm such a problem you're, now. <laughs> you're not. I, I'm in Alabama. So I've, I've switched from football to basketball recently. And my students don't want to hear any more about it. But I do want to ask... This, this question that Kara wrote that I actually, that we all as writers find really, really uh, uh, useful. Well, we like to talk about the writing process because we know a lot of students out there are learning how to write and a lot of professionals still struggle with writing. So you wrote two reviews and uh, sent them to us. And, and one would think that they would probably say similar things and that everything there is known and that you didn't get anything out of the process because you already knew it. But as we all know, when you're synthesizing, Right. Stuff does pop up that that you just never noticed before. So we wonder what lessons you took away from the process of writing these reviews or what you learned that you had noticed. That's a great question. Uh, so the mechanisms of reproductive male reproductive senescence, there's a lot yet to flesh out. That's one takeaway. Um, so immune function tied into male reproductive function. There's very little. There's one paper that Lee Gettler, Notre Dame, one of your colleagues, Kara has authored using Cebu City, Philippines data, but there's very little on that. Um, and the, so I'm trying to think of where to go next in the answer to that. Um, it was, I actually found those very rewarding to, to write out. I think I asked what is my legacy in, in some future in which I'm, in which some future past, I've blown away in the dust of history. What have I left? The proudest legacy I will have left is the fatherhood fatherhood book I co-authored with Kermit Anderson and some of these other things that are kind of spin-offs from that um, as a dad who values his role as a father 
and it's been the ultimate in life's meanings. To be able to write on the stuff that is in the same sentence as saying that is as deep as it gets and an alignment that you couldn't ask for a better fit for. And so even these chapter spinoffs are updates of some of that thinking and syntheses of, as a middle-aged meat wrestler guy now that kind of mentality you know I'm, I'm no longer the 20 something or early 30 something dad of young kids i'm now the 49 year old guy wondering about his worth to society and family and stuff and um that sort of shapes some of what's in there recognizing the importance of age itself uh so senescence and i don't know what that means but okay i do I, have one I, more question for you then on that note because I'm in the same boat, except that I'm not studying it, but I, I have a desire to, as I approach, what people commonly call the midlife crisis, which pisses me off because I think of it as another transition. But the, the so what do you think about the midlife crisis concept as a biological researcher who studies the whole lifespan in, in males? Uh, so if you go back and read Henrik and, and Gil White's 2001 Dominance Prestige paper, they cite another book in there. And if you read the book, a lot of this is actually age. A lot of prestige is something that increases with age. It's as you lose maybe some of that impulse to go smash someone at a football game or in a wrestling match, and you become someone who's more generative in how you want to channel your efforts, including to benefit maybe your younger kin, but also others with whom you might have alliances or such. But it's the prestige element that might increase with age. Is that a midlife crisis? I don't know. That's something about male status and its representations changing with age in ways that capture something of this expanding life course. And is that you know the mid-age years, you, you probably, even from hunter-gatherer data, if you look at age-specific fertility, most fathering is done by 40s in most hunter-gatherer men in those quantitative studies, like among the Hadza and Agta of the Philippines and so forth. Um, yes, there are some guys, including of the Tiwi, you know, ethnographically and such into their 70s and so on having kids, but not not that many. And um, somewhere in there is a story of male males living beyond their reproductive capacities, maybe trying to think of ways to maintain their utility, their political cachet in ways that might show up as a midlife crisis as you're reconfiguring. And I think my own version of that right now is I feel less compelled by my own research questions and I feel more compelled by the questions of others, the students with whom I work. And one of these, to give an illustration that's relevant to the scope of today's interview, I work with Alicia, a grad student here on, um, because of COVID, it became an online survey rather than in-person research done uh, with collaborators at the University of the West Indies in Jamaica. But uh, an online survey with about 107 participants, 70% of them women, to ask in a context of mate scarcity. So at the University of West Indies, uh, it's arguably the premier higher ed institution in the Caribbean. It's predominantly an African Caribbean population. It's about 70% women. It got up to as high as 80% women in the mid 2000s. The institution recognized that as a problem. And in turn, they're trying to recruit more men. Um, how do women conceive of their mating opportunities in a sex ratio skewed against them? Do they perceive scarcity? If they perceive scarcity, what do they do about it? Do you lower your standards? Do you give up? Do you change your sexual orientation with whom you're willing to have sex or relationships? Uh, what, what, what happens? I don't know. So stay tuned, but that's something she's working on. And that's an illustration of me and my midlife version 
driven more by the relationship with a student that's inspiring me within my ability to offer expertise. And then secondarily, I'm doing more and more academic service. Done on tons of committees, tons of discussions in work with mission-driven teams that have been really interesting to have impacts beyond a department level, but to try to scale the ways in which we have impact in adult learning. Reminds me uh, of the opposite situation. Michigan Tech University up in the UP of Michigan has the opposite sex ratio. Um, mm. I'm, I'm, I think it has improved, but back when I was applying to colleges, it was like 25% women to like 75% men, something insanely skewed. Uh, and I'm, I'm, now I'm wondering if they've actually equaled that out, but that would be a fun comparative case of what's going on, although also a US context, uh, which would be really different. Uh, but anyway, so... As we start wrapping things up, you have said you've gotten more into sports and you had the Pro Bowl and you, you stalk Jose Canseco's car wash. So I'm not sure if that's where stalking comes back into all of this. But what other things do you do for fun, Peter? Uh, I read a lot. I read voraciously and I read widely. So I read within Anthro, yes, but I read all kinds of stuff. And that is just who I am. I have what's called range. There's that book, Range, that came out a few years ago. I feel like that's me. That doesn't always serve me well. I have lots of ideas about a lot of things, but maybe they're too shallow to be useful. I don't know. But uh, that, that's one thing I do in my free time. Another thing I do in my free time is exercise. That's been a sanity maintainer through the last two years, walking our dogs, running our dogs off leash in the desert, other things like that, going to gyms now again. Uh, if I couldn't have exercised the last two years, God, I don't know. It's, it's, been, it's been rough. So that's been, that, that's free time. And then just, you know, my daughters are older. And again, one, three months from now, we'll be closing up her high school shop, ready to depart for the next life stage. And I'm at an adult phase of family life, seeing what that means and enjoying that time. Can I cry uh, on your shoulder for a minute? <laughs> sure. In August, on August 6th, I turned 50. On August 8th, I have triplet boys. They all turned 18. And two days after, they had all moved away to college. Oh, luckily uh, well, two of them are here. This, well, good thing you have this podcast. Yeah, right. Two of them are here and one's at Auburn, but the empty. The, this the clearly empty, fills the hole. The podcast clearly <laughs> fills the hole the podcast, of, of triplets. <laughs> I, I should have all of us be your children. We'll be all, well, all of us can be your children. You can give us some fatherly advice. That was the best possible answer you could have had. Thank you for that. If I could throw one last fun thing. I, I, yeah. Uh, so I, I have also reached a point, this might be sin to say it, but the conferences that I've most enjoyed the last couple of years have been consumer electronics shows, CES. Uh, I've gone to that three times in person, once virtually. Um, so I shouldn't say that, you know, with an HBA audience listening, but uh, I, I think I've, in a, I've also, like I'm no longer reading the hunter-gatherer literature like I was when I thought it was going to be a Hadza researcher. Now I'm thinking about AI and mm. crypto and I don't know, adult learning mediated through technology. The issue we're and, watching the Super Bowl, huh? Everybody's yes. on crypto. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, you go to CES, this is the stuff you're living and breathing, and it's really pretty fascinating stuff, as well as uh, one of the coolest things this year was the creepy robot, Amica from England, that um, might outmode our podcasting or teaching. I'm kidding, that won't really happen. But uh, if, you, if you look up some CES Amica, A-M-I-C-I -I, footage of this robot, it'll give you some questions to ponder about where humans fit in the future. Well, very cool. So you're moving towards AI and all sorts of neat stuff where humans interface with technology and a whole suite of other things. 
Uh, so how can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more? What are you willing to share? Uh, so I'm usually reachable um, by email. You can find my email. I'm at UNLV and Anthro. Uh, but if you send me an email, you'll get a quick response. Uh, unless it's Saturday or Sunday, then you get a slightly delayed response. Uh, ResearchGate, you can find me that way too for papers, chapters, that kind of stuff. Twitter, I'm act active on Twitter. Uh, so you'll find me there too. You can DM me there if you want. Um, but I'm always uh, happy to have these conversations, sports, male reproductive health. Also, I work with several students on, on dogs. So, you know, this can go a variety of ways. But thank you for this opportunity to talk about dads. One of the, one of the tired jokes any students who can now repeat to me that I've said too many times to count is people care more about dogs than dads today. <laughs> And it's so nice to be able to talk about dads for once. Mm. And I'm going to play this to my own daughters. <laughs> and they're going to say, oh, God, stop it. Dad. Enough of it. But, Enough of it. <laughs> but there it is. Yeah. Thank well, you we, for letting me. Well, one, thank you. Because obviously, I think you and I could talk sports for hours, probably. Uh, but two, will we see you in Denver? No. No. Okay. Be at a computer electronics conference. Consumer, uh, yeah. consumer electronics, sorry. Well, that's in January, but yes, I'll, I'll, I'll probably be working on I'll be working on something else, but it might be a, a, with a student on a dog project, funny enough, at that time. But uh, sadly, I won't see you there, but um, the sports scene out here, Kara, you, you, yeah, if you can find a way out here, it's just blowing up. Mm. Uh, it's fascinating. And I'm working on oh, one, one ongoing project with an undergrad is female, so girls age 10 to 8 to 11, hormone responses to playing soccer. So this is in the IRB stage of the process, so stay tuned for that, too. As a former soccer coach and player, I love that. Kara, as, a, as an overall sports researcher, loves that. I think we need to go to, to Las Vegas, Kara. Sounds good to me. All right. Done. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your fascinating and really broad work. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank, thanks, both of you. Very appreciative. All right. We will uh, talk to you soon. Have a good one. Okay, take, take care. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.